you very much, Tim. Thank you very much, Carol. It's good to be with you. Um, it's the first time I've st stood in the pulpit to preach for quite a while, so um, it's a sli slightly new thing for me. Heather, I wonder if we could just have the first slide up on the screen. So the King is coming. It's Palm Sunday. We often refer to it as the triumphal entry, don't we? And it's a familiar time for us as Christians, a familiar time in the Christian calendar, a week before Easter, a time when the church remembers Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And as we read that passage earlier, it's almost like a sports team, isn't it? Returning from a glorious victory abroad, like maybe the England rugby team, I don't know. Coming back, the open bus tour going through the middle of London. People cheering, people shouting, people waving flags. There was a great air of celebration. And just here as well, here are people calling Jesus' name, calling out to him. Crowds lining the streets. It's a busy place. Waving branches, laying them on the floor. It's a hive of activity, isn't it? So Jesus' journey to Jerusalem uh, and eventual arrival in Jerusalem itself certainly causes a stir and a reaction amongst the crowds. So we begin here with those cheering crowds, with those people lining the roads, shouting his name. But throughout this week, those people who were stood cheering his name will turn against him. In a few days, they will turn on him. So what, may we ask, goes wrong? Why do they turn on him? Because in less than a week, Jesus will find himself betrayed by his own disciples, arrested by the high priest's guard, accused by the religious leaders, tried by the Roman governor, and ultimately sentenced to death, rejected by his friends and by those who on this day are shouting out his name. It's not particularly triumphant, is it? But before we have a look into John's passage, I just want to kind of have a look at a couple of things that the passage tells us to understand the, the context of what is going on in this passage. And there are two key ingredients. Um, Heather, I wonder if you could just click that on. Oh, there we go. Uh, two key ingredients that perhaps helps us to understand what was going on. So the first thing, it was the Passover. It was the Passover festival. And of course, for, uh, for the nation, for the nation of Israel, this was a key part of their history, a key foundation to their identity. It remembers God bringing them out of slavery, out of Egypt through the desert, through the Red Sea, and sustaining them uh, as he brought them out of Egypt. So for the Jews, the Passover means freedom. It means a rescue from slavery. It means having their own land to dwell in. And perhaps the greatest mystery of all, why God, the God of the universe, would choose this fairly small, insignificant nation to be his people, to be the ones that he chose. And so throughout their history, it's been celebrated. It's been remembered. But Passover doesn't just look back, doesn't just look back to what has been, although that was, of course, very important. Doesn't just look back to the crossing of the Red Sea, doesn't look back to the escape from Egypt in the dead of night. It looks forward as well, it looks forward to another Passover, a future Passover, where once again the blood of the Lamb will bring salvation, where Jesus will once again pass over because of what he has done. And where Jesus will rescue his people once more from oppression and slavery. So the first thing, therefore, to understand is Passover, perhaps like Christmas for us, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's their focus. It's a big deal. Uh, people are preparing for it. They are singing about it. They are buying food. I don't know what, that, what sort of things they did, but you can imagine it, can't you? There is a hubbub of excitement. There is an air of busyness. But the Passover is a crucial and fundamental part of their history. And the, the Passover is a big deal. And so they want to celebrate, and they come out in force to do just that. 
But alongside the celebrations, there is another factor at play. They are, of course, an occupied nation. The first, first century Judea is under a Roman occupation. This small nation, they've had their fair share of uh, foreign occupation, haven't they? Foreign rule. You can read it throughout history, throughout the Old Testament, that they were constantly under foreign rule, under the rule of a foreign leader. And here is another such time, and their situation, therefore, is nothing new. But picture it, if you will. A foreign military superpower has invaded and occupied your land. Things like taxes, they are very high. Some say as much as 30-35%. Punishments are swift. Punishments are brutal. Failure to pay taxes, failure to do as they were told, would have led to devastating consequences. Of course, we know as good Christians that Jesus was crucified, but he was not alone. We remember the two that were crucified on either side, but crucifixion itself was used as a key part of the Roman deterrent. It was their preferred method of execution. It combined a deterrent, it combined punishment, and it was a weighty political statement as well, isn't it? All in one excruciating and lengthy torture process. So in response to the celebrations of the Passover festival, and on this Palm Sunday, we are told that there was likely to have therefore been a second procession coming in. The, the Jeru Jerusalem itself would have swelled with number because of the Passover festival. But we are told, we are, history, history tells us that there was a second procession that would have come in from the opposite side of the city. They don't give the exact date, but it's believed to be round about to the time of the Passover. So Jesus is coming from one side, and on the other there is a procession of Roman soldiers on horseback, on foot, clad in shining armour, with shields, with banners, a show of force, a show of intent. Designed to say, remember your position, remember who you are, remember who are your rulers. There may be lots of you, but remember who's in charge. Don't try anything silly. And so as we come into John chapter 12 and verse 12, this is where the scene opens. Tensions and emotions are running high, no doubt. On the one hand, we have this nation preparing for the festival and all that that entailed for them. Recalling their rescue from Egypt, recalling the great miracle that happened. Looking forward to the coming of a new Messiah. And on the, hand, on the other hand, we have the Roman military superpower. Efficient and brutal. Reminding the people, in the midst of their celebration, of who is in charge, of who the Romans are, and of what they can do. No doubt if you're of a certain age, you'd have seen spectacular things in your lifetime. Events in history, both in our nation and globally, that have changed say, our world and our nation, both, historic, both historically and politically. But those who are party to this event on this day, we're going to witness a week like nothing else. Like no other week we would have ever, have ever seen since. A historic week that would change the course of history and would be filled with meaning and significance. It's just at the time, most of them didn't know that. Most of them didn't realise what was to happen, even those closest to him. Even the disciples didn't fully grasp what was going on. So when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on the first day of the Passover week, the huge crowds are looking for someone to rally around, aren't they? They're looking for someone to carry their banner of hope and of freedom and of liberation. They are looking for a new king. Someone they could pin their hopes on, their future hopes, their future aspirations, their future dreams. They've been under a foreign rule and not a nice one at that. The Jewish people wanted someone 
who would come, who would break them free from that tyranny, break them free from that rule. They wanted a new king, someone who would sit on a throne for them. But Jesus isn't traveling the road to his coronation. Jesus isn't traveling a road to a throne. No. He's traveling the road to a very different sort of throne. He's on the road to Calvary. And on the way, we see three things. We see three things that happen along the way. First of all, on the road to Calvary, Jesus picks up some admirers. Of course, not even the disciples themselves could comprehend that by the end of the week, uh, Jesus is heading towards his death. We read throughout the Gospels, don't we? Every time Jesus mentioned this, every time he said, this is what is going to happen, they, they stood up, they said, no, no, that's not going to happen, that's ridiculous, that's stupid, don't say that, Jesus. We're going to be here right with you every step of the way. We're not going to let that happen. Each vows to stay and defend Jesus against whatever might come his way. So the disciples were certainly admirers of Jesus. There's no doubt about that. And if you just look at your Bibles for a minute, we see in verse 18 as well that the the miracle that Jesus had done in the previous chapter in raising Lazarus from the dead, it was still fresh in people's memories, no doubt. People who had seen it, people who had been witnesses to it, no doubt the, uh, the gossip mill was working well. People had, been, had, had heard about what, Lazarus, what had happened to Lazarus and what Jesus had done. So those people who had seen this miracle, those people who had seen Lazarus come out of the tomb, they'd followed him to Jerusalem, we are told, to see what else he would do. They were certainly admirers of Jesus. And we're told in verse 12, right at the beginning of the passage that we read, that the great crowds that had come for the Passover heard that this guy Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They came out to see what all the fuss was about. They'd heard about him, no doubt. He was on the way to their city. Let's go and check him out, see what he's he's all about. So these big crowds, whether they had come from Bethany and following Jesus, or whether they were in Jerusalem Jerusalem already, wherever they had come from, people were curious. People were wanting to find out more. People were admirers of what Jesus was doing. he'd He'd healed people. He'd given great speeches about wonderful things, about love and of tolerance. Wouldn't you be interested in the hype? If somebody came doing that, maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't, I don't know. But these people were. They wanted to see what was going on. And it's interesting, as Jesus arrives, what they shout. They shout three things, or three things are recorded that they shout. And look at verse 13 again. Their words seem to point to a, a deep nationalism among those lining the roads. But equally, their, their words are very scriptural. But I wonder the reason why they were shouting them. I don't, it's, as I've been reading about it, it's, it's really opened my eyes to what they were shouting and perhaps why they were shouting it. They shout, Hosanna. Literally, that means save us now. But save them from what? I wonder why they're shouting, Hosanna. In their understanding, perhaps it meant to save them from the Roman occupation, to save them from the Roman rule. They were ruining their lives, so come save us. Save us from this. Save us from this this tyranny. Of course, he would save them, but not how they imagined. They also shout, blessed is he. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, they probably uttered these words not fully understanding what they were shouting, not understanding who Jesus was and what he had come to do. He was certainly the Messiah, but perhaps not the Messiah that they had imagined. And they also shouted, Blessed is the King of Israel. Notice King with a small K. 
It clearly points to their hopes and dreams that Jesus would be their king. That he would be the one to sit on a throne, to rule and to make everything okay again. He was the king, but he was not the king that they imagined. Or indeed the king that they wanted him to be. So these crowds are longing for freedom. These crowds are longing to be released. And in Jesus they see their new hope. Their new hope of freedom. It's just perhaps they shout these things for the wrong reasons. Throughout his earthly ministry, we see it, don't we, that people were drawn to Jesus because of who he was. He'd done miracles, he'd done parables. People had been amazed about the things that he had done. He came with a new type of language. He came with a new type of ministry. He came with a new sort of action, a new sort of love, new language, no judgment. And they liked that Jesus stands up to their corrupt political leaders. And he says slightly controversial things. They like that about him. They like that Jesus seems to be a man of the people as far as they're concerned. He eats with sinners. He talks with prostitutes. He speaks with women and children. Nobody is off limits as far as Jesus is concerned. They've been looking for a hero. Someone they could hang their hopes on. And Jesus is the flavour of the moment. But Jesus wants to correct their misunderstanding of who he is. This is nothing new. If you, um, if you, if you can, flip back to John chapter 6. And there are two verses there um, where we read that previously there are some people who tried to literally force Jesus to be king. Uh, it's, uh, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Um, it says, Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew to a mountain by himself. Whereas before he withdrew, here he confronts it. Here he confronts their misunderstanding. In light of what he knew was the real reason for their shouts, Jesus made the point in the only way he could. It was interesting as Tim was doing the children's talk that there was the view of what sort of king Jesus would be. This is exactly my thought. He was, was he to be a king in tremendously gleaming armour? No. Was he a king to ride on a, a mighty beast riding into the city? No. Was he a king to have a mighty uh, kingdom, a mighty uh, palace to live in? No. He climbs onto a donkey instead. A small, unridden donkey. Coming by himself with no fanfare or regalia. And in doing so, he fulfills the scripture that we read in Zechariah a while ago. Unlike human kings, he would have come in all that pomp and glory riding on big horses, with surrounded by servants, surrounded by all sorts of other stuff, gold, silver, you name it. Jesus rides a small donkey, coming in lowliness and in gentleness. But the problem with the admirers is that they see what they want to see in their hero of the day. What the crowd saw in Jesus was, not, uh, was the son of Joseph, not the son of God. They saw him as a revolutionary, not as their redeemer. They admired Jesus because they thought he was their redeemer and he was the answer to all their problems. So it's no wonder that by the end of the week, when they start to realise that this is not the king that we thought he was, those who admired him on Sunday were shouting, crucify him on Friday. So as well as the admirers on the road to Calvary, Jesus picks up some opposition. In what is an otherwise jubilant scene, of singing and shouting and of celebration. We can just picture it, can't we? The Pharisees hear the commotion. They hear what's going on. So rushing towards these sounds, they, 
they quickly size up the situation. Jesus' followers are trying to proclaim him as king. They're trying to get him on the throne. Don't need to turn to it, but we're told in Luke's gospel, Luke's account of this story, that the Pharisees shout out to Jesus. He says, rebuke your disciples. Basically, tell them to shut up. Tell them to be quiet. You'll upset the Romans. You know what they're capable of. And besides, we don't actually think you're particularly uh, the, the right Messiah anyway. So just, just shut up, would you? And as we read it in John's account in verse 19, we find a similar situation. No doubt, up to now, the Pharisees have tried to shut up this growing momentum. They try to keep it quiet. But here, they realize how ineffectual they have been, that Jesus' ministry has gathered a momentum of itself. They say, look, see, this is getting us nowhere. A fairly uh, blunt realization that their efforts to, to date have come to naught. Look at how the world has gone after him. Look at the momentum that Jesus is gathering in his ministry. Look at the number of people who are admiring him, who are lining the streets. Look at what Jesus is becoming, in their eyes at least. But just as some wanted Jesus to be their king with a small k, there were those, the Pharisees included, who disliked what Jesus said, who didn't want them, didn't want Jesus to become the king. They despised what he said. They despised what he proclaimed. Again, we can read throughout the Gospels. I'm not going to turn to any particular example, but you can read throughout the Gospels of times when Jesus encountered opposition. He'd been opposed from the very beginning of his ministry. For every one that loved him, there was another one that wanted to get him to be quiet. The problem was now, in the Pharisees' eyes at least, look how the numbers had swelled. Look at the number of people who were jumping on the bandwagon. They were getting a bit twitchy. If this continued to grow... We don't know what could happen. There could be a rebellion. There could, try, there could be an overthrow. And they could put Jesus on the throne themselves. He'd become too popular, too charismatic, too much trouble for him to be allowed to continue. And with the growing numbers, it was too much of a danger. So he had to be stopped, even if that meant they had to kill him. So Jesus faced opposition in his ministry from the Pharisees and from any number of people. But knowing all of the opposition that he would face, he kept telling people about the love of God. He kept telling people that they could have a new relationship. He kept healing people. He kept feeding people. He kept preaching to people, even when their admiration turned to opposition. But it's in his ultimate expression of his true kingship that he, he ultimately disappoints both those who admired him and those who opposed him. And that's quite a thing to do two diametrically opposed views on Jesus, and he cheeses them both off in what he does. Because Jesus moves not towards a throne of human making, but a throne constructed by his enemies, a throne made of wood, a throne in the shape of a cross. So on the road to Calvary, Jesus picked up the cross. Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem to hear the crowd shout, Hosanna. He didn't come to receive the praise of the people. Jesus came to Jerusalem not for Palm Sunday. No, he came for Good Friday. And on the road to Calvary, not only does he pick up some people who admire him, some people who oppose him, but most importantly for us, he picked up the cross. The road that Jesus walked into Jerusalem on this day didn't end in the city. It carried on through, out the other side through the city gates, to a hill called Golgotha, to Calvary, to the place of the skull.
And it is on this road later on in the week that Jesus picks up the cross for his final leg of his journey and the journey to his throne. It's interesting as I was reading it, as I was reading a commentary, I'd never really noticed this before, but we usually phrase this, uh, Jesus was crucified. We say Jesus was crucified, and that is certainly true, but if we look at it, it perhaps misses the point. Yes, the Passover crowd demanded it. Yes, Pilate confirmed it. Yes, the Roman soldiers ultimately carried it out. Jesus was nailed to a cross. But if we say Jesus was crucified, or they crucified Jesus, we perhaps miss the great significance. Because Jesus picked up the cross willingly, sacrificially, and obediently. The Apostle Paul says, he became obedient unto death, even to death on a cross. Jesus himself said, I lay down my life, and no one takes it from me. So even though Jesus struggled with the weight of what he was about to do, he wept tears of sorrow, drops of blood when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the weight of what he was about to do, uh, overwhelming him, even asking his Father God to take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done, he said. Jesus picked up the cross and he picked it up for you and for me. Because the road to Jerusalem was not this highway of Hosannas. It wasn't about people shouting at him, Hosanna. It was not the pathway to a palace or to a throne. It was not the road to Jesus ruling over Jerusalem in a human sense. No, Jesus walked the road to Calvary and he walked it knowing fully well what would happen, knowing how it would all end. He knew his admirers, his disciples, his opposers. Perhaps they didn't. And it's because Jesus picked up the cross, because he picked up the cross and he gave his life, that we can live. He walked the road for our forgiveness so that we can have that future hope in him. We can have a salvation now that is not just for now, not this, just this city for now, but the city for all eternity. So we have a question we need to ask ourselves then, don't we, this Palm Sunday? If this is true, if this is true that Jesus picked up the cross, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? Are you here this morning as an admirer of Jesus? Maybe you like what Jesus teaches. Maybe you think he's a good man. Maybe you think our nation can learn a lot uh, by Jesus' teachings of love and of tolerance and of grace and of goodness. And that is true. We probably can. Or maybe you oppose Jesus. Maybe you say, well, I don't oppose Jesus. Well, I don't know. Maybe you think the teachings of Jesus are the ones of a madman. And quite frankly, like the Pharisees, you just want us all to shut up about it. Regardless, it doesn't matter whether you're an admirer of Jesus, whether you're an opposer of Jesus. Jesus picked up the cross for you. The Bible says we are separated from God. I have to excuse the slightly uh, naff diagram. But the Bible says that we are separated from God. He is perfect and holy and pure and righteous and just on the one side. And we are independent. We are sinful. We have gone our own way. So we cannot hope to bridge that gap between us and God, even if we wanted to. Even if we tried for the rest of our lives, we would never, ever be able to bridge that gap. Because our sin makes us unable to. We might think we want to, but ultimately, we don't really. And that's why Jesus died. That's why Jesus picked up the cross on the road to Calvary, to bridge that gap between God and us. So you can remain an admirer of Jesus. You can remain an opposer of Jesus. It doesn't actually matter. Because as he showed, Jesus came. 
He carried that cross and he came to be thrashed. He came to be beaten. He came to be insulted. He came to be spat on. He came to be punched. He came to have nails driven through his hands and his feet and to hung on the cross outside of the city walls. Why? Because Jesus wants to be your king. He wants to be your king with a capital K. Your king, your saviour, your messiah. He went to the cross to die an agonising death. But it is one that means that bridge can be crossed because he has crossed it for us. I don't know what's brought you here today. I look out on a sea of faces. I know a lot of you don't know some of you. I don't know whether you accepted Jesus as your king this morning. If you haven't, we would love to pray with you at the end. We'd love to invite you to come and to be part of God's family. Invite you to be part of that eternal salvation, of that eternal city that awaits us. You know, you've gone your own way, but you want to turn that around. You want to say yes to Jesus and to be welcomed into his family. Or maybe you've been a Christian for many years and your faith has grown a little bit cold. You've drifted into the routine of Christian life and forgotten just what he has done for you. Well, the cross is here for you too. And we'd love to pray with you as well. And prayer ministry will be available at the end. But allow Jesus to be your sacrifice this morning. Allow Jesus to save you. Allow Jesus to bridge that gap for you. Allow Jesus to be your king. And then like the people on Palm Sunday, when they shouted these three things, we can shout them for the right reasons. We can shout, Hosanna, God save me. We can shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Messiah has come to save you. Blessed is the King of Israel, King of Israel with a capital K, the one who will be seated on the eternal throne forever and forever. And there's a video clip I'm just going to show in closing that asks two fundamental questions. Is Jesus your king today? Do you know him today? So let's just watch this. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be at all sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He 
forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. words ringing in our ears and taking up residence in our minds and in our hearts. Let's stand together to sing in response our gratitude that before the throne of God above we have one who is a strong and perfect plea for us. <laughs> 